The black speech, th- this of course is the uh, inscription, what you would call the ring spell, and uh, very, very tricky language to, uh, to speak. And the voice that you can hear underneath is the voice of Alan Howard, a great British actor, and he is uh, the voice of Sauron. One of the heroes of this shoot was Victoria Sullivan, the uh, continuity script supervisor, and she had to help you with a lot of this, didn't she? Yep, Victoria had to keep a real running tab on who was looking at whom at any given I think, time. I think we must have driven her crazy. She came from the Matrix, she, and she's gone back to do Matrix 2 and 3. Yeah. The Council of Elrond in the movie is really quite different to how it is in the book. I mean, in the book it's used as a way to... Uh, catch up on a lot of story points that we need to hear about, about, you know, Gandalf and Saruman. And um, it introduces and tells us a lot of stories about Gimli and the dwarves and uh, Boromir and where he's been. And we obviously didn't have time really for any of that. Um, but we also we also had one fundamental difference in, in our Council of Rivendell, which is very different to the book, in the sense that in the movie we had we had Frodo saying that he was going to take the ring to Rivendell. He was, being, he was going to Rivendell, and that was going to be it. Whereas in the, in the book, Frodo is really going to the crack of doom right the way from the beginning, and Rivendell is merely a place to stop and regroup. But we wanted to have a, 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 an event happen at the Council of Elrond which propels the momentum of the film through into its second half, which was the fact that Frodo now really has to, has to make a, a choice all by himself to volunteer to carry this ring all the way to Mordor, that it wasn't what he, his original intention was. And that was a fundamental change that we made in the movie. We just felt it would be undramatic if right from the very beginning he was going to Mordor. This speech of um, Boromir's was um, given to Sean the night before. And he, oh, that's right. That's right. He hadn't he hadn't had a time to learn it, <laughs> no. and it was written out and it was on a piece of paper that he put on his lap. So if you look at him talking, he occasionally, as part of his dramatic performance, he 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 lowers his head, and what he's actually doing is he's reading his lines of dialogue off off his lap. I'm not sure he'd thank you for saying that, Pete. Doesn't doesn't do it too often. Yeah, but he had this great like he had a page of dialogue that he was given give it to him on, know, like, virtually on the morning that we, that we, we were shooting. It's just terrible. <laughs> Not a failure on the part of the. But he does it brilliant, brilliantly well. Mean thing to do to actors. Yeah, he was so phenomenal though. He did he did uh, rise to all occasions. One of the things we were reaching for with Gandalf and and, and wanted to sort of hint at is the thought that that he has an understanding. Uh, that Frodo is the only person who can carry this, but he knows that he cannot force Frodo to do this. But we also wanted a sense of great sadness and loss. I said to at Ian the moment that, that he does volunteer. I said, I said to Ian that he should imagine that he's just heard his son volunteering to go join the army in World War One, which mm. was that look there that he gives. Understanding that it must be done. Understanding that it has yeah. to be done, but it could kill him. I will take the ring to Mordor. Once Frodo volunteers, it gave us an opportunity to really see the forming of the Fellowship because, after all, this movie's called The Fellowship of the Ring, and so it gave us this wonderful opportunity to just one by one to let each character come forward and to join, which I think is nice and uh, all a little bit different to what's in the book, but 
I think it worked quite well for the film. It provides you with one of those cinematic moments that you need. And my axe. It's quite funny, especially when you think John Rhys Davies is about six foot three. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's uh, the perfect proportional height to the hobbits. Yes, it is. That's yeah. right, because John and the hobbits don't have to be changed no. in relation to, to each other. The group shot of the members all standing together was done, obviously it's a visual effects shot, and uh, it was done against blue screen, where we had the, um, we were able to shrink this, the hobbits down and Gimli down to be small. There's actually not that many shots in the movie of all nine members of the Fellowship together in one shot. There's very few of them in actual fact, and so it's always nice to see it when it happens. So welcome back to disc number two, and we're going straight into a scene that we had to delete from the theatrical version of the film, again just for momentum reasons. When we cut the film theatrically, we decided that once the Fellowship were formed, we had to obviously give Frodo the mithril vest and sting, but we wanted to leave Rivendell as quickly as possible. And that was purely a momentum decision of just wanting to punch the film forward to its next act, essentially. But we had shot this very lovely sequence where Aragorn is basically farewelling his mother's grave. Um, because he was brought up in Rivendell, he was raised by the elves, which is something we never really got across strongly in the theatrical version, but scenes like this do illuminate on that side of his character. His mother um, died and was buried here in Rivendell, and so we used the moment of him farewelling his mother to reflect on his responsibilities, that Elrond is trying to encourage him to, to, um, to rise to his responsibilities to become a leader of men. But... Aragorn feels that men are so weak, that they're so flawed, which he acknowledges even though he is one himself, that he, he really doesn't know if he wants to go there. Rivendell was a set that was built at um, Kaitoki, which is a Wellington park, about 25 miles north of Wellington. And we built, like this room is actually built inside the park. That's a real forest outside and um, we were filming, and so I wanted Rivendell to have this very much indoor-outdoor, kind of very close to nature. And we didn't mention it earlier, but um, when we first see Ian Holm here in Rivendell, he has the second stage age makeup, which Weta designed. Yeah. It's a, is it the stipple? It's a stipple makeup, mm. because obviously because Bilbo doesn't have the ring anymore, he, his his ageing process has accelerated. Um, I think you gave a million people a heart attack with a shot, Pete. Like yeah, Ian does this so wonderfully well. He's, um, you know, he, he's just playing a character that hasn't really been able to finally give up the ring. And that was done with a rubber puppet that we morphed a rubber puppet into Ian's face for a few frames. So it's half Ian, half rubber puppet. It's like a combination of the two. It, it's a, absolutely a moment from the book, though, that. Yes, it is. It well, is, where it, it says is. a shadow yeah. passes across Bilbo's face yeah. and suddenly Frodo sees something horrible <laughs> a gr and a grasping and groping. Thing. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. No, definitely inspired by, by the book. But I think the scenes between Frodo and Bilbo are very, very special in the film. Is that, you know, they are. It is really, in a sense, it's one of the reasons why Frodo does what what he sets out to do is because of um, the fact that he 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 sees through Bilbo just how evil this ring is and why it must be destroyed. 
rather than you will. In the theatrical version, as you know, we just thundered straight out of Rivendell um, following the scene with Bilbo and Frodo and we had shot this farewell. We actually shot a little bit more of it too. There's there's some more footage that doesn't appear on this um, version of the film either where Elrond and Frodo have a little conversation. But this was what we thought was going to be in the film for quite some time until at the very last minute we decided to trim it out. It's just nice because it allows Frodo a moment where he just can convey to us the enormity of what he's been thrust into, where suddenly he's been put in the spotlight, that he's the symbolic leader now, he's the, the ring bearer, the leader of the fellowship. And it allows us this one last opportunity to see Aragorn and Arwen together. And as, uh, as readers of the book know, that's going to be quite some time in the story before we see the two of them together again. These are combinations of miniatures and matte paintings and various waterfalls photographed from different places in, in New Zealand. That ruin is a computer-generated ruin. I, I flew around in a helicopter um, with our aerial crew shooting these scenes. We had doubles that we took down to the South Island. And this is, the, um, this is what we call our hero fellowship shot. It was done against blue screens. Um, with a, uh, a scenic plate of the South Island of New Zealand. This is a great location, I really love this. It's just out of Tianau, um, near Lake Manapuri. And it's just a great part of the country. I really love filming this stuff. Bill the Pony. We, we actually didn't have Bill for a while in the script. No, and then, Bill and then the Pony Pete, was Pete, added much, was much later. Pretty determined to stick Bill in, but, but Mark Odeski didn't realise this. And when he came down one day, he... He saw this pony. He said, "What the hell's this pony doing?" We said, "It's Bill. Bill's back well, in." The, the reason why we didn't no, think, think we could have right Bill was because do. of the problems of shooting on the mountains. That we thought, "How on earth are we ever going to get a pony up onto these mountains?" But we, we, <laughs> so we solve that by resorting to what's called the pantomime pony, which is simply to have um, have a pony played by two people. Somebody's the front end and somebody's the back end. And in quite a few scenes, there's um, especially the scene in the snow where the fellowship are walking. That's actually the that's actually Bill the pantomime pony, the fake pony, which solved the problem of having to transport the real animal and all these to all these far off locations. We wanted this connection, of course, between Boromir and and Merry and Pippin. It's very very important for the end of the movie. What is that? Nothing, it's just a whistle of cloud. It's moving fast. This was shot in uh, National Park at the top of the South Island and again it was it was a location actually that we were that was offered up to us by our helicopter pilot that we were flying around going somewhere else and and Bill the, the helicopter pilot um, said to me, Oh, I, I saw a really interesting place that I've never seen before. It's on the side of a mountain about 15 miles away and there's all these weird rock formations. And I said, I immediately got interested and I said, Oh, well, could you fly us here now and give us a look? And he flew us over this location that you're seeing now. And um, this was uh, just, it was amazing with all these incredible weird rocks. It was something almost like out of Easter Island. And so I just thought, We've got to shoot something there. So. I thought this scene ultimately would be a really good one to go back to that location. So we went back there and dumped the crew on top of this mountain and uh, shot the scene. Ian was really funny. On one of the um, blooper outtakes, he emerges from behind the rock and he says, instead of spies of Saruman, he says spies of Star Wars. <laughs>
this was a sequence that was shot on a mountaintop near Mount Aspiring. It was a real very high remote mountain and the helicopters flew us in, dropped us off and then they went off to park on the other side of the hill so they went and shot in sight of the cameras. Um, but the helicopters were never that far away because the weather is so is so difficult up there and it can change, it's so changeable that a, a storm could have suddenly swept in and stranded us on this mountain. So they were very close by in case they had to do an emergency ev evacuation. And for, the, for that big ring close-up shot, Pete. That was a large ring. I was a ring about was oh, about six inches in, in diameter, so we could get the ring close to the lens. We had a much much bigger ring. Hmm. This this scene, of course, is not in the book, it's although Boromir's temptation is, is in the book at the council. Exactly in, in the book, mm. and, that, and that particular line uh, that we should suffer so much fate. Fear and doubt. Yeah, is 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 of course in the uh, one of the last things he says yes. in the book. Yes. But it was too good not to play it this soon. We needed this. We needed this this progression. This was a shot that was almost one of the last things that we added to the film. That we wanted a, a, a sense of the crows returning to give their um, to give the message to Saruman and. The, the model of the caverns below Isengard had already been packed away, so I got them to drag the model out and set it up again just to do this shot. And we did the blue screen with Christopher Lee very late as well. He flew back out to New Zealand to the do that. You. Will you risk more These are all miniatures? All miniatures, yep. This was a huge big model that um, Alex Funky, our miniature DP, shot. One of the very first miniatures ever to be shot for the film. Yes. This was um, a hellish... Uh, oh. Studio shoot. That's right. The Fran, Fran actually studio. directed a, a, quite a significant piece of the scene. Well, uh, uh, John Mahaffey did it too. Right. Yeah. And um, well, John really did it. So. John Mahaffey, our second unit director, directed quite a bit of this scene with Fran. I think you were there too, weren't you? I, w I was there. There were there were rice flakes flying around <sighs> and polystyrene, and the rice flakes would get wet and turn sort of gluey yeah and, um, and get everywhere stick in the in the treads of your shoes and your it, handbag was full of it it your, was horrendous it got into everybody's underwear <laughs> what the hell were you doing in there <laughs> no I, I wasn't what you doing? personally checking it but <laughs> everyone reported it it was it was a horror and i said to pete you know you've really got to come in and shoot some of this stuff because <laughs> it's, it's gassy and i don't want to be here anymore and um he he said, "No, no, I'm, I'm due. I have to run with the Olympic torch. Yeah, I don't want, I don't want right. to get, I don't want to get all that crap in my hair. <laughs> and so, um, unfortunately, um, I got, I got stuck there. The great athlete. <laughs> that shot there of Legolas is actually on uh, in real snow. It's weird because." Most of it's fake in a studio, but there was a couple of shots we didn't have, and so one day we were filming on a real mountaintop, a different scene, and I thought, well, we could, I could get that shot that I want of Legolas breaking through the snow. So Orlando got to be the guy that had to do it in real snow. We, we buried him, we, we covered him over in snow, and he got to punch his way out as an insert for the scene, or even, even though everybody else was in polystyrene and rice flakes. I'm fairly sure that in that shot of Saruman on top of the tower, mm. Uh, where he's invoking the mountain, mm. um, that you can see his bandaged finger. 
Oh. I'm pretty sure I can oh, see a big lumpy finger there. You mean they missed it? You mean the critics, the... the I the, don't think the fans have the seen The only retentive... No, we'll point it mistake out. Mistake spotters. I the interesting thing about the the spells that the the two wizards are contending with here with each other was it's spoken in Quenyan and older Elvish dialect and and what's interesting is that Gandalf is actually saying as he does in the book sleep he's asking Caradhras to go back to sleep and one of the things I love about Tolkien is that the idea that the, the, there is a spirit even within the mountain and what Saruman is doing is awakening that malice the malice of the mountain and Gandalf is is trying to make it sleep. Another scene trimmed from the theatrical version for pacing reasons is this nice little moment between Gandalf and, and Frodo that we, we wanted to really emphasise the fact that Gandalf is sensing his impending doom, that he doesn't want to go into Moria. However, because Frodo has now made a decision, he's going to go along with it. But he wants to just take an opportunity to warn Frodo that from here on in the journey is going to get more dangerous. And it's a scene we did with um, Ian McKellen. It was actually the last thing we shot with Ian for the Fellowship of the Ring. It was a pickup that we did after the completion of photography and Ian flew out to New Zealand and we shot the sequence in front of a blue screen and we composited in the mountains behind them. It was done in the studio and uh, it was done literally on Ian's last day of being involved in the movie and he flew home that afternoon. The little moment here between Legolas and Gimli is a little beat of the rivalry between dwarves and elves, which we did shoot for the movie, and we had to trim most of that stuff out for the theatrical version. It's obviously a very notable part of the book, the, the sort of antagonism between those two characters that, that slowly turns into friendship. The Gates of Moria used to be a, a very well-used road that the elves and dwarves would take in ancient times before they fell out. I always love the idea that the door has this inscription that, that reflects moonlight. It's so that if the moon's out, then the, the letters, the uh, markings on the door glow, which I always thought was a really magical. And that wide shot was your deliberate recreation of the Alan Lee painting of the yeah, Moria door, Yeah, Alan's got a it? painting that's almost identical to this, and I just thought that's got to be what the Gate of Moria is like in the movie. So we deliberately tried to replicate it as, as, as closely as possible. Obviously, Tolkien himself designed the, the pattern of the gate, the symbols on the gate. There was a lot of concern about whether Gandalf should appear too much of a, of a failure here. And I guess the slightly longer cut shows more of his frustration. But I actually always loved it. I thought that to make Gandalf fallible, to show that he, even though he's this spirit, he is inhabited in the body of an old man, he does forget things, he's not always perfect. I think it was really nice for his character. It's sort of it's anti-wizard in a funny kind of way. This was filmed on what's called the wet set, which is basically like a big swimming pool that was outside in Wingate, which was right next to a railway line. If you hear the real sound that we recorded on the day, it's just full of trains rumbling past the set. In fact, I think people could look out of the window of the train and actually see what we were shooting. This little moment here was studio request from Mark Ordesky. <laughs> because he was worried about what the audience might think you know, would become now a he, Bill. What, what, what happened was, when he finally discovered that somehow Bill the Pony had materialised, he said, what happens to the pony? And I said, <laughs> well, in the book, he's released outside the Mines of Moria where all the wolves are howling and they're really hungry. And all Mark could see was this great horror that we were going to send Bill the Pony off to 
beaten by wolves. I always wanted the watcher to go and grab. Grab. <laughs> I thought that would be great if the little donkey <laughs> was kind of like ee or ee or, and he was kind of <laughs> pulled below the surface by a big slippery, slimy tentacle. No, so that, was, that very lame line. Don't worry, Sam. He'll find his way home. Yeah. Was our concession to the studio. Yeah. <laughs> that was done under duress. It was under protest. The idea of giving the solving of the puzzle to Frodo, which uh, some people sort of objected to because, of course, Gandalf himself solves it in the book, was basically because by this stage Frodo's starting to drop out of the story. And, and always one of the things we had to work very hard to do was to keep him in focus and keep him very proactive so that he's not just somebody who's being dragged along by other people. There's a couple of shots there that, that are not John Rhys-Davies. They're another person in his makeup. John had had a very bad reaction um, to the prosthetic by this stage because he, he, he faced, a, I think it was began as a five-hour or four-hour prosthetic and ended up being three hours. I don't think it was ever less than three hours, was yes, it? Yes, the glue was um, giving him tremendous inflammation around his eyes. He was such a, he was so great at dealing with And it, it got to the point where we couldn't shoot with him on consecutive days. We would have to shoot with John every two or three days yeah. to give him a break. The Watcher is one of those scenes that was a little bit of a fight with the studio, that uh, there was always a feeling that it was unnecessary, that we could just have the door open and they'd just go straight into the mine and carry on going to the mine. But I always, I loved the notion of the scene. I thought the film needed some more, you know, a good monster sequence at this point in time. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I kind of fought for it. And obviously it's a little bit more than what's in the book even, because in the book you don't see the creature as clearly as you do here. You just see the tentacles. Yeah, um, coming out of the water. But I, you know, so this was, was a fight, I have to say, to retain this um, sequence in the script. But fortunately, as they did in most situations, the studio finally relented and let me do, let, let me do what I wanted to do, which I was always very grateful for. One of the most important things it does, of course, is, 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 is gives them no choice. It locks them in there, and we would have had to have... Yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea that they decide they yeah. don't want to go through the mine when they see how... how nightmarish it is and then they have no choice they get they get entombed in there they have yeah. no choice at all but they have to walk through the mine and i love the idea it's a four-day journey that uh that they they're walking under under the mountain it's just such a great evocative sequence it's probably you know the best sequence from the book really mm. it's, it's something that, something that everybody remembers from the book mm -hmm. so yes. it sort of it naturally became one of the major set pieces of the film i think i think it's one of the most well-written chapters of the book yes i agree it's beautifully written, and uh, musically, Howard took his oh, cue from yes. from the the, the, the dwarves and uh, utilizing a male choir to that was Peter actually take what, us through what, what happened. I remember we were having lunch in uh, your place, and um, you were t you were talking you and Howard Fran were talking about the choral the concept of, of, of choral music, especially in this place. I think you'd found some great stuff in the temp track that you'd used and uh, Howard had really enjoyed it. And um, Pete, you were talking about some of the women vocalists that were around and things like this. And I said all the dwarves were male and, and that's when your eyes lit up and said, a male choir. You were thinking of the great Welsh mining choirs. And that, it took off from there. And then of course Howard managed to find incredible a Polynesian choir here in New Zealand. We have a sequence coming up which was cut 
revealing more information about the mithril vest which Bilbo gave Frodo, and we felt that that the mithril vest had been established well enough back in the Rivendell bedroom scene, and we didn't really need to to dwell more on it, which is why this was trimmed out. But um, it's got a a nice mood to it, and I love the idea that there's this huge mithril mine right in the middle of the mountains, the actual mine shaft where the mithril has been dug out of the mountain, sort of a seemingly endless hole, which I found uh, pretty creepy. It was one of the first miniatures that we ever shot for the film. And as readers of the book will know the story that uh, that the shirt of mithril rings was given to Bilbo by Thorin, which is one of the episodes um, from the book The Hobbit. And we sort of make reference to it in this piece of dialogue. The fork in the road, the three-way crossroads is, is in the book. Um, and I always like that idea that Gandalf kind of forgets. We we wanted to play Gandalf as being human, really. To ha- yeah, mm. to be fallible, that he wasn't just a wizard that knew what to do all the time. And um, and I love the idea that he hadn't been in there for hundreds of years, and you know he he knew his way through, but he just couldn't quite remember which of these three tunnels to take. The golem that you're seeing here is almost our prototype golem. When you see him in the two towers, he will look a little bit different to this. This was done, you know, early, and we have since developed him and changed him slightly. So uh, at some point, we'll probably go and redo that shot there for some later. DVD edition of the Fellowship, so that it uh, it matches up with what we with the golem that we're going to see in the two towers. We trimmed a little reference here out of the theatrical version, which refers to Gollum as Schmiegel, and we trimmed it out because we didn't need it in this film. But I'm including it here because this whole concept of Gollum's original name being Schmiegel is something that's very important in the two towers, and so I wanted it back in this version of the film. So hopefully, people will get to look at this prior to seeing The Two Towers, which is obviously coming onto the screens very shortly. It's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. The, this scene's really interesting because although, you know, because it's done with false perspective, they're not looking at each other when they're saying these lines. When you see two shots of them making eye contact, they're in fact, you know, many feet apart looking at quite different points. This scene has the, is really the heart of the book. It's the hardest. It actually happens in Bag End, doesn't it? In yes, the, in it the does. shadow of the past yeah. um, chapter. But this is a much more appropriate place for it, it in terms of the cinematic story that we're telling. It's, this is the one place where we felt we could stop. And and the key thing about this is that, that what Gandalf's saying to Frodo is so utterly important because this is where you're getting a sense that he knows that he is not going to be around for yes. this boy. Yes. And not going to be around to help him. Yes. And I think Ian played that beautifully. There, there are two two great messages that come through in this yes. scene. The first one is do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Yes. Which is, is Tolkien's humanitarianism, really. It's, the, it's yes. the spirit of the book. It's forgiveness, and through forgiveness is redemption. And in that sense, it's quite a, a, a Christian and also notion. That, uh, and that that is the role of a greater being, too. Yes, yes, there are other forces at work, work in this world besides yes. the will of evil. And the, the other great message in this scene is um, all you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. It's that way. He's remembered. No. But the that is the essence of well, that. It, well, that's about free will, which is, is again plays directly to, to, to the powerful themes that underlie the story, which, which really 
informed Tolkien's, you know, view of life. Mm. His his Catholic um, faith. Mm. The sequence in the Dwarrodale Hall was inspired by a painting that Alan Lee did for the for the centenary edition of the Lord of the Rings. Um, wonderful watercolour painting of, this, of these huge towering columns that seem to go on and on forever with this, these tiny little group of people walking at their base. And uh, we, we looked at that painting while we were writing the script, long before we ever met Alan Lee, and we always took huge inspiration from the visual look of Moria. And then that's the image there. And then much later, um, for my birthday, <laughs> Um, Fran gave me a present and I opened it up and it was the original painting that she'd got, she'd persuaded Alan to part with it <laughs> and and, um, and I've now got that, that original painting on the wall of our, in our house. I love the scale. It's yeah, so it's, just, it's just, it's just, the scale's fantastic of just showing tiny people with this huge architecture, it's mind-boggling and then to think that it was carved out of the interior of a mountain, I mean I just love the idea that it was once solid rock and yet the dwarves chipped away at the rock and created this hall of columns. It's just, you know, I just like thinking about it. It's really exciting. Balan's tomb is pretty much as described in the books. Mm. Um, the shaft of white light, you know, we, we, we really wanted to, 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 to be as accurate as possible to the descriptions. That We felt that even though we, we were taking liberties sometimes with characters and with dialogue and with the way that the story unfolded, we didn't really ever want to take liberties with the world that the story was in. So we, no. were, we were always very strictly accurate, as much as possible anyway, to, to, to the places so that at least fans of the book would feel that they were seeing Middle-earth come to life. Mm. Underneath this, you can hear um, John Rhys-Davies actually speaking some Dwarvish, I believe, except for the choral pieces, it's the only Dwarvish that we hear. And you're only Fiendishly difficult see, um, language. You're going to see Vigo in profile here because he... <laughs> Whacked himself in the eye with a surfboard and gave himself a black eye, so he had to uh, <gasps> shoot him for about he went a week. Yeah. Surfing with the hobbits. This was shot on a Monday, and he'd come in on the Monday morning, and he had this huge swollen face. That shot there, he had this huge swollen face on the right side, and um, so I had to shoot everything from the left, which is why you you see some rather slightly awkward shots of ego because normally I wouldn't choose to do that, but um, I had no choice in this instance. The well is used a little differently. It's sort of how we worked on the screenplay as we'd take all these ideas of Tolkien's and, we, and we'd find slightly different ways to use them because Pippin throws a pebble down a well at some point, not in Balan's tomb, it's in another place in Moria. But we, you know, we took that idea and we enlarged it to make it this kind of key moment in Balan's tomb when the orcs are alerted to, to their whereabouts. On the walls of Balan's tomb are dwarven runes. If you, if you look closely, all around the tomb, like um, on every single wall, is carved the story of the history of Moria mm. and the dwarves in Moria, and it's all there. If you, if you understand runes, you and you can sort of read the odd word here and there. We use some miniatures, obviously, to create the large caverns in Moria. The orcs. Or the goblins. I mean, I, I don't know whether they're goblins. We called them either goblins or Moria they're orcs. The that's the same. The same thing, thing essentially. We, we we wanted to create a sort of a race of of feral creatures that live underground. They're a little different to the orcs that you see elsewhere in the in the movie. That they're much more um, subterranean. Sub, yeah, they're subterranean, large, round eyes, 
which would have developed so they could see in the dark. Very sickly skin. Yeah, pale skin, yeah. yeah. So we sort of, we, we did put a lot of thought, and, and, and their armour is quite sort of cockroachy. With a, with a, with a, and, and they've even on some of their gloves they have little hooks, which is what allows them to crawl up and down the walls. Somebody asked me why Glamdering wasn't glowing. I, I must admit, I didn't know why. Uh, probably due to budgetary cuts. Budgetary cuts? <laughs> not enough, not enough blue left. The intention with the fighting was to make you feel like you were part of it, that I, I wanted to really get in there with the camera. It was all shot handheld. Um, I often used to shoot this fight on Saturdays, uh, when I was shooting Monday to Friday with the main unit and I'd come in on, on, on the Saturdays and shoot some of the stuff with the second unit. And then through the week, Jeff Murphy, one of our second unit directors, was also shooting a substantial part of this fight as well. He shot most of the shots with the cave troll were done by Jeff. There's actually a few cave troll shots that we trimmed out of the uh, movie which we can get to look at here. A little bit involving Sam, which I always liked. Um, but again, we just felt the cave troll sequence went on a little bit too long, so we... We nipped and tucked a few shots out, but they were actually shots that we'd already finished. We'd done all the effects for them, so we were able just to pop them straight back into here. This little moment between Boromir and Aragorn is significant too, um, because it does show that their respect for each other is growing following the earlier antagonism between the two characters. The cave troll was a character that we developed um, very early, like he existed at least a year before we started shooting if not actually more than that, really, two years before we started shooting, we had tests of the cave troll. And I always loved the idea of a, of a monster that sort of felt real. I wanted to not make it an over-the-top movie monster, but a creature that you could sort of believe in. So we wanted to make him a little stupid. You know, like, he, he's not really evil, but he's just fallen into bad company. He's like a big, simple kid who has just got bad friends. And, um, you know, and he comes in waving his hammer around. But I wanted there to be some sympathy for the troll. Because I always imagine that the troll has a mother, you know, and she's probably got his bed turned down and, oh. a, and a glass of warm milk by his bed. And he's just, he's not going to come home. Oh. You know, and I, I always just felt quite sad, really. But, uh, he is quite empathetic when yeah, he dies. Yeah. Which is, I think. Uh, um, it is in the book. That's a yeah. testament to Ran Ran Randy Cook, is it not? Yes. Did, did Randy drive. Yeah, well, Randy, uh, who's our animation supervisor, I mean, he and I are big Ray Harryhausen fans, and we always regarded this as being our Harryhausen scene. That the one thing we're doing differently is we're using handheld cameras, whereas the, the old Harryhausen movies like Jason and the Argonauts and Sinbad, the cameras were always locked off, completely static because it was just a, it was the only way that um, those effects could be achieved in, in those days. But we thought it would be great to do what's essentially a, a, a wonderful Harryhausen monster fight, but do it with handheld cameras so you get much more of that documentary sort of feel. So if you look at the troll fight, every single shot, the camera's handheld, and it gives it that little bit of life and energy. But, you know, the gags are all Harryhausen gags, really. You know, throwing stones at monsters, he did that. You know, throwing spears, jumping on their backs... Um, you know, it was, it's all been done before and in a way we thought it was just our opportunity to, to, to pay homage to the great old Harryhausen films. Once Mary and Pippin jump on the back of the troll, they become CG characters. They, they're little computer-generated Mary and Pippin. You know, we, I mean, we took out our lead from the book again with the mithril vest gag where, where Frodo gets stabbed in the, ch in the chest by the vest, but we just milked it a little bit more. I mean, that, that, that's often what we did in the film was to take our lead from sections of the book, but then sort of to milk them for all they're worth in a, in a, in a 
much more of a movie kind of way. So we did a, a lot of pre-visualization on the scene, which is to plan it before we shoot it. Um, it's quite complicated, but I'm sure there'll be something on the documentary accompanying this DVD, which will explain that in more detail. Creating the mithril vest was tricky too, because it is such a magical thing, yet we had to create something real, but we did it. We made a, a essentially a chainmail vest out of tiny, tiny rings of chainmail, the finest sort of wire that we could bend into loops, and we um, we had it silver coated, yeah. sort of a sort of a platinum. It was it was a nightmare for Nyla. They had but to it, get the measurements was, so right to, before they cut it. And, it, and, it, and, and it took it took somebody weeks and weeks and weeks yeah. to put all this chainmail together. That those are all tiny little metal loops put assembled by hand one at a time. Yeah. It is actually very beautiful to look at. It's a very beautiful garment. To the bridge of What you're seeing here is you're seeing a completely computer generated image. The fellowship are computer generated, the the environment, the columns, the architecture are completely computer generated. That often in movies, you know, that's that's a rare thing that to have shots which of which nothing is real. This is another one where um, everything is just done in the, in the computer. And we had we were had no ability to build a set this big, of course, because it's sort of basically endless. And what we did is we built two bases of columns. So if you look at all those columns and just imagine the bases of them, we had two of those in the studio against black. So when we cut to the live action stuff that we're looking at here, you're just seeing we're filming our two big column bases um, is all that we have and we're just looking at the two same two columns over and over again in the various angles and then obviously intercutting that with some um, computer wide shots. This is a sequence which again is enhanced from what's in the book um, that it was really you know the, the, the introduction of the Balrog didn't happen quite in this way but um, we just wanted to make a, a sort of a rollicking Indiana Jones type sequence out of it, really, to, yeah. to have some fun with it. This new devilry. It's a great talking line. What is this new devilry? I love the look in Ian's eyes. I love <laughs> the way that he's reacting to this Balrog. It's fantastic. And then Legolas's eyes. Yes. His close-up that's coming. Because that is what the one thing that elves would fear in the Middle Balrog, Earth, yeah. Is the Balrog. A Balrog. Yeah. Balrog is actually a, um, strangely enough, is actually a spirit, a Maya spirit, very similar to, to Gandalf, who's also a Maya spirit. So these two are actually beings um, of a similar power, but at off opposite ends of the. In our screenplay, scale. it said something along the lines of the fellowship run from the Balrog down a, a staircase. <laughs> Was two and across lines. the bridge, <laughs> I know. It, it literally goes from the Balrog <laughs> appearing in the hallway and the goblins running to the bridge in like two lines. And and what happened um, and the with the development of the scene is is to the horror of the studio. I think um, is that it obviously developed into the biggest effect sequence in the entire movie. But I think it's a great scene. And and the way that it came together is that Alan Lee drew the bridge. I mean, we, the, the staircase. We call it the staircase, really, where the Fellowship run down. And we were just going to get one shot of them running down. And Alan had drawn this picture exactly as you see it in the movie here. Exactly. In pencil sketch. 
except he'd had this broken bit of bridge and Alan just said to me oh I thought it'd be fun to have a broken bit because then they could jump over it and and, and that really sparked my imagination going of well what else could you do with a broken piece of bridge what say you were being shot at with arrows as you were trying to jump over it so you keep complicating it and then um, Randy Cook was very instrumental in taking a lot of the ideas that I came up with and then he did an animatic and this was about about a year and a half before we started shooting and he developed an, a, um, an animatic which is a simple computer version of the scene just done on a home PC um, and R Randy came up with all sorts of extra ideas and we eventually between the group of us we worked the scene up to the state that you see it now and we had it pretty well prevised um, with, with this computer animatic pre-visualization pete has got to take credit for No One Tosses a Dwarf. I'm sorry, we're disowning that line, aren't we? No One Tosses a Dwarf. Well, you see, <laughs> dwarves, it's a very British thing. It's something Americans don't know too much about, but uh, England has a sport called dwarf tossing. In fact, one of our scale doubles, one of our little four-foot-high guys, that um, Kieran, who, uh, Kieran who came from England, Kieran Shah, who came from England, he had been tossed several times in his career. Hattie, I thought it was an Australian invention. I think it's English. I think it is English in the Aussies. No, the Australians do gumboot tossing. No, they, no, they have, do no, dwarf they tossing dwarf, too. Dwarf they tossing. do dwarf tossing, yeah. yeah. Well, it probably spread spread to the anyway. so more the more crasser members of the Commonwealth. <laughs> but I, I thought it had a completely different meaning in England. No, no, to toss a dwarf is a sport. You pick up a dwarf and you throw the dwarf. No, that's as, the Americans as, have a completely different understanding of that oh, phrase. Oh, is that what it is? Phrase. Anyway, it can be. I don't think it's a sport in America. Distinctly untolkien. Very untolkien. I think it usually appears in quite a different type of video. Right. Alex Funky did a wonderful job of lighting these miniatures that we're looking at. Um, the only computer part are the people running and the column that crashes down is the only computer part. Everything else is a miniature. This is my, one of my favourite shots. I'm so excited to see this. Mm, this is a great shot. The music is wonderful here too. The Balrog it was always difficult. He was a real problem because of the way that uh, Tolkien, I love the heat haze, the heat yeah. haze really sells it. I love the fire under the skin, I never envisaged that, I think Well it's that fantastic. was one of the ideas early, is to have cracks in the skin, oh, that, I love that, that was on the original it's Marquette. Brilliant. And I love the soot. Well we, we tried to create the feeling of the shadow and flame, this is a great yeah. shot, I, I, I love this, this is, these are computer fellowship, These the people you're looking at running here are completely computer generated, they're not real at all, but you can look at the way their cloaks are swinging around and their uh, just just the way that they that they look we're getting the computer people looking pretty real now as we go through the film we've got a lot more of them in the second and third movie coming up but um the the, the balrog was described as a creature of shadow and flame and we decided to try to to use shadow and flame for obvious reasons to to, to provide his look so we have this black smoke oozing off him and the, the flame and not really see too much of the physical balrog beneath that And he's got wings. He has got wings. I read the book and I imagine Tolkien's describing wings. I don't know what the big fuss is about. Yes. Ian has spoken many times of acting this scene to a ping pong ball. <laughs> was yeah, it? he had a, a really nightmarish time mm. with the scene because he was having to confront something. He didn't know what the Balrog looked look like. He didn't have a clue. We were in a little studio 
right beside the airport, planes were taking off all the time, and Ian had to kind of do his Balrog confrontation, and it was a it was tough. It was hard. Some people say, why does Boromir stop, and why doesn't anyone go and help him? And there's there's two answers. One is that they're actually fir- they they are actually far away, but also that this the rest of the bridge is in a bad way and could collapse at any second. Oh, but what I love no, in the I book... I didn't realise that. It's what it is in the book. Oh, OK. What, didn't you do that for that reason? I oh. thought he stopped him because he's carrying the ring. He can't afford to have him... Yeah, well, that... I love the bit in the book where um, later on when um, Frodo says, if it hadn't been for us, he says to Faramir, they wouldn't have run. He was talking about Aragorn and Boromir. If, if it hadn't been that they had to look after us, they would not have run. Love that. I wonder mm. if we can get that in. And also, on that line, fly you falls, which mm. I, th- I think Ian does it so beautifully, that, that he lets go rather than falls. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. He wants that's them to. The choice yeah. he makes at that moment is to... It's the choice he knew he was going to have to make from, from the moment he, he, yes. he understood the mind of Saruman. Yes, this was a um, this was another helicopter location where we had to fly all of our actors in. Didn't and we Sean did this walk very, in? We did this very early. No, no, Sean flew in. We we did this very early in the shoot. I mean, we we shot this sequence long, long before we ever shot Moria. Long before, in fact, Ian Ian McKellen hadn't even arrived in New Zealand to start working when this scene was shot. So they were all reacting to Gandalf's death without having ever even seen Ian McKellen dressed up as Gandalf. Like this was. Um, this was late 1999, and Ian didn't start work on the movie till January 2000. So it was one of those weird scenes where we were fi- found ourselves filming this without having shot anything leading up to it at all. It was not Orlando's first day, but probably his third day of shooting ever, wasn't it? It was, it was yeah. And I, lo- I love the way that Orlando does that reaction where he reacts yes, to, to the great. death. It's like an elf. Because elves are immortal, we wanted to give the impression that he didn't quite understand death mm. and he was having to somehow grapple with the concept of death because it was it was foreign to him. I remember um, Elijah saying you gave him a great note here, Pete, when, when you asked him to turn. You said, I want your grief to be to be frightening. I want it to yeah, be so I want, I want it to Yeah, I want it to scare an audience yeah. to see what's the look right. on your face, yeah. Lothlorien was created in a forest called Paradise down in the South Island, and the big trees are actually made of rubber. If you look at this um, forest, the trees that are nearby, the smaller ones are real, but the large, big ones are actually la- big rubber trees that we took down there, because the one thing that Paradise made did, of, didn't have made is it didn't have trees that were large enough, um, that were had a big enough girth, so we, we brought our own ones in. But the rest of the forest is real. Introducing Galadriel and the concept of, of Lothorian was difficult. It was also difficult in terms of the story of the film because it's one of those situations where if you were writing an original screenplay, Lothorian probably wouldn't exist because mm. you'd be wanting to keep the momentum up straight through to the climax. That We always regarded Lothorian as being potentially problematical because of the, the way that it suddenly stops the narrative of the film. Um, you know, and we did experiment a lot with different ways to present the elves and how they introduced. And at some point, we had a, a, a sequence where the goblins from Moria actually pursue them right the way into the woods and are killed by the elves. And we shot most of that scene. It's never made it into a cut, but uh, it does exist. This is a totally alternate version of the entry into the Lothlorien woods. 
we ultimately decided that this moment on the flat was, for pacing reasons, something that we wanted to delete. So we shot an alternate scene which has ended up in the theatrical version of Meeting Haldir, played by Craig Parker, and journeying on through the woods. But we initially wanted to make it more difficult for the Fellowship, that, that as in the book, they're not immediately allowed access into Lothlorien um, because the elves can sense that there is an evil. And we also made the sequence about Frodo's headspace, that he's sitting there and he's just feeling now that because the Fellowship are encountering a problem due to him, that they're not allowed sanctuary because he has this evil with him, that they're starting to turn against him. They're obviously not, but it's just what Frodo's imagining. He's sort of, he's feeling this weight of responsibility and he's feeling the pressure, obviously, now that he's lost Gandalf. And so it's it's nice. It's a good scene for people to have a look at because it's not it's not bad. It does start to put more pressure on Frodo, which obviously helps as we start to head towards his decision to leave the Fellowship. And we mentioned Galadriel by name. In the movie that was screened, uh, Galadriel just refers to herself by name when she says, um, and I shall remain Galadriel. The thing that I like about this too is that we get to see the elvish city from the outside. Obviously in the theatrical version, we just jump straight in there. But we get to see this shot of what the elvish city of Karis Geladon actually looks like from afar. These were miniatures large model trees, huge big model trees that were, were shot um, and the people were composited and they were computer people that were walking up the stairs there. This was, um, Paul is saying um, that a lot of uh, conceptual artwork for yes, this. Yes, yeah, Paul did a couple of wonderful paintings of Lothlorien that, that we really took the, the look from his paintings. Yes. The way that the lighting happened. The Lothlorien sequence was always very difficult for us in the movie because it's a point in the film where you naturally would be wanting to increase the pace and be building up a sense of momentum to head towards the climax of the movie. But obviously the, the sequence in Lothlorien is very, very significant in the book. It's significant in the movie as well because it's the point that Frodo has to decide whether or not he really is best staying with the Fellowship or leaving and Galadriel obviously gives him advice. but. We always had pacing problems, and when we cut the theatrical version, we, we wanted to make it as brief as we possibly could so we could propel the story along. But I felt that this cut of the meeting with Galadriel and Celeborn was actually better, and that it, it starts to suck you into the world of the elves and the world of Galadriel in a way that I think is ultimately a little bit more effective than the truncated version that ended up in the movie. Martin Chokaz plays Killerborn. Galadriel's a very enigmatic character and we decided to really emphasize what is in the book, which is the sense that she herself is severely tempted by the ring, that um, the ring represents to her a threat, a test of her strength, of whether she can withstand it or not. She's difficult to visualize because I think everybody who reads the book comes away with a slightly different impression of her in your mind, which is obviously the beauty of a book that allows you to put your own vision of Galadriel into your own private movie. But showing elves on the film was always very difficult, and Galadriel more so than most. But Kate Blanchett obviously does such a wonderful job. Kate's on six-inch disco platform heels. Yes. yes.
which I think is quite funny because she needed the height. Galadriel is described as tall as any of the men. She also needed it. She felt she needed it, the stature. And this moment we were looking at here is the, the first beat in the relationship between Gimli, who's obviously so suspicious of the elves. He doesn't want to be there, but he now looks upon Galadriel with, uh, in a very renewed way, and we'll be seeing more of that later on. <laughs> I like the way that Celeborn too just doesn't let the Fellowship get away with anything. He basically tells them off and uh, says how they've failed and that obviously impacts on Aragorn who feels a certain amount of responsibility. If you look into Galadriel's eyes in these close-ups you actually see something strange happening in her eyes that it's called the, it's called, we, we call it the Galadrielite which was a device that Andrew Lesney, our DP, designed. And it was, in, in, in every time you film an actor in close-up, you see a pinpoint of light reflected in their eyes. It's called the eye light. And it does a lot, you can see it in all these close-ups, it does a lot to bring the characters to life. But every time we shot close-ups with Kate, we didn't just have one light, we had like a Christmas tree, uh, Christmas tree lights all in a big circle so that there'd be stars reflecting in her eyes, multiple light sources. Not in that shot, though. In that last shot? No. Uh, no, that was scary. No, but you, you see it in, in all the other shots, though. Mm. That, was, that was a scary one. Uh, Elizabeth Fraser is singing here, mm. this lament. It, it, what I like about what Howard did here is it's a, it's, it's a lament by one voice answered by the others, which is really lovely. Choir, big. And as we carry on through this sequence, we are starting to see a longer version than what we saw in the theatres. Lovely little character beats. This, uh, it is something that I regretted having to trim out of these moments where the characters can start to interact with each other a little bit more. And this sequence here, we just decided we, we didn't have the, uh, the latitude to be able to include it in the, in the movie. It's a moment that I always loved in the books. And... Um, it's a lovely way too to honour Gandalf. This was obviously all shot on a studio. Uh, we built three large tree trunks. And I love the idea of the fellowship camping beneath the roots of the tree. That they, um, that they have this little sort of sleeping quarters which is uh, organically sort of within the, the base of the tree. These borders are well protected. I will find no rest here. This was another important beat in our, in our Aragorn-Boromir relationship story. She spoke of my father. You know, we always regarded Boromir as being, not being a villain in the slightest, but uh, being somebody who has very legitimate reasons to want to have the ring. He, he, you know, the, the one thing that the ring does is it, it acts as a temptation and, and, and you can be a person with the strongest will and, and this, the soundest heart and absolutely believe that this ring is the best thing for you, which is what Boromir does. I mean, he, he comes from a country which is under siege where there's enormous pressure on having to come up with a, with a weapon to fight the orcs who are besieging Minas Tirith and Osgiliath and that he, he genuinely believes that this ring would solve all, all of their problems. And underlying that even deeper is, is the fact that he has a father, in, uh, which we're just starting to set up here, is that his father... Obviously, for those that know the book, The Return of the King um, has the character of Denethor very, very 
prominent character in that story, which is our third movie, and uh, Denethor is Boromir's father. And what's important here is that 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 you're beginning to sense that 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 Boromir is uh, that something is wrong with him. Boromir has a sense that there's something wrong with his father, and he's he's like any son that loves his father is trying to trying to sort out that internal conflict he feels between the growing madness of his father and what his father needs and desires of him. And it's a conflict that ends up tearing him apart. And that's how the ring works. The mirror of Galadriel, one of the very, very famous iconic scenes from the book. It's a scene that again, we sort of, we manipulate the scene, I guess, to, to serve the interests of the film, maybe mm-hmm. slightly more than what's, than how it plays in the book. Yeah, well, we took Sam out of the scene. Mm. Yeah, and we also introduced uh, the elements of the scouring of the Shire in the scene as well. Yes. Because the scouring of the Shire, um, as the readers of the book will know, is a, is a sequence that happens at the very end of the third book, and we don't have it in our movie. Um, and yet we wanted to give the concept of what was at stake, uh, and it is ultimately the Shire that's at stake in Frodo's heart, that he he is doing what he's doing to protect his homeland. And so we 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 use the mirror um, more so than what's in the book. We use the mirror in the film to to show what would happen to the Shire should the should Sauron uh, be victorious. One of the reasons Sam isn't here is because this is a, a critical scene for Frodo. This is the scene in which the full weight of what he must do, the decision that he faces, is clearly put to him by Galadriel, and that is the purpose really, of the entrance into Lothlorien. We also wanted to use the scene in a way to plant the seeds in Frodo's mind that the fellowship cannot be trusted anymore, it can't be relied upon anymore, and that the only the only logical way forward for Frodo is really to break off from the others and to go alone. And, well, he, and, and, he, yeah. and we wanted the, we wanted the scene to, to end with a sense that Frodo... You know, that that was now a, a very definite um, option for Frodo. That he but had. not so much that not so much that he can't trust them anymore. It's that it's that he, if he stays with them, he, he he will be the death of all of them. He can only bring them death by 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 staying with them. This is our homage to the scouring of the Shire. And this is the this is the concept of what's going to happen to the Sandy hobbits Man's should. Mill. It's Sam and Rosie being led into the factory to a life of servitude in, uh, in the Hobbiton steelworks. Which is pretty much how Tolkien saw the transformation of Birmingham, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. From the Midlands, pastoral, beautiful Midlands mm, countryside. To, to industrial hellhole. I love the way that Kate plays the scene. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of love the mis- mysteriousness and the, the intensity of it. It is what will come to pass. If you should fail. I know there were some comments from people once they saw the movie feeling that Galadriel was a lot heavier and darker than she was in the books. And um, that's true to some extent. We did play her that way, but we also filmed a much lighter um, sequence where she gives gifts um, as the Fellowship leave, which was cut out of the original theatrical version of the film. But that does present much more of the Galadriel that I think people um, expected to see from the books. She is perilous, though. I mean, Tolkien does describe her as dangerous. Yeah. She is mm. a dangerous. Mm. And what she's saying, I think, to earn these lines where she does this transformation, where you could see what she could become, you, you, you needed 
this sense of of the power that is in this woman and her element here if you look carefully is water if Gandalf is the servant of fire Galadriel's element is water and that was based on an, again on an Alan Lee sort of working with Nyla Dixon the costume designer and they wanted her to look drowned didn't you a sense of yeah we wanted to make it very much mm, a sense of water a siren a siren, a siren exactly. Yeah, yeah. And when we say her element, um, one of the things that you see here, which was again not in the um, original cut, is the presence of Nenya, the ring of adamant. The ring, one of the three rings forged at the, that you see at the very beginning in the prologue, and that is um, she is the keeper of, of Nenya. The other ring is held, of course, by Elrond, and his element is the sky. Um, Velia, I think you say it. And the third ring, the keeper of the third ring shall be revealed. That is why she says to Frodo, to be, to bear a ring of power is to be alone. The book hints at the concept of the Urukai being created as an, an amalgam of orcs and goblin men. Yes, we did. We went further, deeper into another mythology. We went into Tolkien's other writings to draw on this concept that they were, in fact, once elves. But we create, you know, we created a, a, the Urukai really as being these formidable foe who do ultimately provide us with our climactic um, battle in the film, really. Lawrence McElroy, who plays um, Lurtz, does the most incredible job of, of bringing the prosthetics to life because obviously he's covered in this makeup, and you know an actor can easily get drowned in this in the makeup and, and be lost inside it. But uh, Lawrence was just an absolutely brilliant master at, at just punching, using all the energy in his natural performance to just punch through the rubber and the mask to to bring this creature of Lurtz to life. I think he did it remarkably well. The whole, the whole, the whole thing we were, we were constantly trying to show is one of the, 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 the reasons um, Saruman has, has fallen is just as Malkor fell, the original spirit of evil within the world fell, is because of the jealousy of the power of life, the power of creation. And, and he's playing God. And that's, that's what I love about the look in his eye in that scene between Saruman and Lurtz is he says, and now perfected. Mm. Meaning that he is, he has that power. That power is now in him. Genetic I, engineering. Genetic engineering, exactly, exactly. In and the, of course, talking this thing. Sorry, within the greater the thing of his own faith is that there is only one source of that power. In the movie, we didn't pause for the Galadriel gift giving, which is so memorable from the book. We just got the fellowship on the river and away from. Lothlorien, but we originally shot the gift giving and it actually appeared again in photographs and I think some images from it even appeared in some early trailers. So it's good to be able to see these moments um, as they were originally shot. The cloaks that the Fellowship wear um, were given to them in Lothlorien and in the movie version they suddenly just are wearing these cloaks and there's no explanation for how they got them. The Lembus bread is significant because uh, Lembris bread returns to the story in the second and third film 
and we filmed sequences in those movies with the Lembus bread, and yet we never introduced it in the theatrical version of The Fellowship of the Ring. So this is another reason why I'm glad that this DVD has an opportunity of being seen by people um, prior to the release of The Two Towers. Because actually one of the very first scenes in The Two Towers between Frodo and Sam um, involves them eating Lembus bread. So at least people will have some concept of, uh, of what that actually is now. This is where Aragorn gets his dagger, which he uses th throughout the, uh, the rest of this movie and the next two films. So it's nice to be able to see it being a gift from Celeborn. This was actually not a river at all, but it was a small pond that was in a country house called Fernside, um, north, of, north of Wellington. But uh, it was a lovely pond surrounded by trees, so we thought it was a suitable location. Legolas gets his bow. Now, Merry and Pippin get these daggers, which again form a significant moment in the two towers. So I'm glad that people are able to see the, these daggers being given. All of the gifts that Galadriel gives the Fellowship are actually used in the next two movies in different ways. Um, and so I was pretty adamant that I wanted to include all of these scenes in the DVD because this rope, for instance, that Sam is being given does play a part in the two towers. And, uh, you know, the... The hope is that most people will get to look at this DVD and uh, understand where these things came from as they look at the next films. This moment um, is a continuation of the of what we started in the flat with the uh, the moment between Gimli and Galadriel. It's lovely to see Kate smiling there too because I know some of the criticism that people had of the Galadriel character in the theatrical version is the fact that she had this sort of slightly frightening, heavy persona which it was appropriate for the scene that she was playing, but we did originally film these um, moments which, which are more like the Galadriel from the book, where she has a little bit more of a fun-loving spirit. And what a lot of people don't realise, certainly people that haven't read the book, is that Galadriel is in fact Arwen's grandmother. So if you can get your head around that, that uh, Kate Blanchett is Liv Tyler's grandmother. And so... Uh, the relationship between Aragorn and Arwen has some significance for Galadriel. This was a scene that we filmed uh, most of the scene in, in Elvish. It's a lovely language when it's spoken by, by actors who really get their tongues around it. Of the gift-giving, this was the only bit of the gift-giving that made it into the theatrical cut. But uh, the file of light that she is giving Frodo. We don't actually see that in the Two Towers, but it's sort of kept safely in his pocket all the time. But in The Return of the King, it will reappear. May it be a light for you There's a sort of special bond between Galadriel and Frodo too, that uh, Galadriel knows things that Frodo knows, and there's some you know, secrets shared between the two of them. She knows about the power of the ring. She knows how it's beginning to affect him. And here's the final beat of the little story between Gimli and Galadriel. It's, um, we could never really figure out a way of actually filming three of Galadriel's hairs that uh, she gifts to Gimli, so we decided just to talk about them instead. You know, in a sense, that was one of the things that we lost in trimming down the footage for the theatrical releases. We lost little character moments. Um, Gimli falling in love with Galadriel, <laughs> the way he does, I think, is really... He does it so beautifully. It is beautiful. John Rhys-Davies, fantastic. These aerials were shot in a variety of different places through New Zealand. They're all done for real. There's no special effects involved here. 
Some of it was done in the North Island. Uh, some of it was done in the South Island. We just sort of looked around for the most spectacular bits of river that we could find. <laughs> the river journey in the book is a fairly leisurely affair which takes place over several days. And, um, you know, in the movie, we kind of transformed it into a, into a semi-chase scene, I guess. Uh, it's, just, it's just quite interesting. I quite like the juxtaposition of the, of the, the Eryx running on foot, you know, desperate to catch up, and the Fellowship not really being totally aware that they're being pursued, um, who are taking this much slower journey down the river. I love the way that Orlando spins around and just uh, senses the presence of the Eryx with his elven sense, senses. We had a wonderful helicopter pilot, Alfie Spate, down in Tianao, who was flying the chopper, filming all this stuff. It was, it was very exciting. I was in the back of the chopper, zooming low over the treetops. It was a bit of an adrenaline rush, I'll tell you. You know, we, f we felt that it, the scene had a certain degree of redundancy, just from the concept that that Gollum had already been identified in the minds of Moria as pursuing the Fellowship. Of course, what this does help us, because it does show that Gollum is still on their tail, and um, that's the way that we go into the Two Towers, because Gollum obviously makes an appearance very early, in the, early on in the Two Towers, pursuing Frodo and Sam. It also gave us these extra little character moments. Um, this sequence here was designed to feed into the climax of the film where where Sam wades into the water and says, well, you know, I'm coming to, to Mordor with you, Mr. Frodo. And we deliberately wrote this scene as a way of almost making Frodo starting to distance himself from Sam. So a feeling that Frodo is now emotionally disengaging from his friends, from the rest of the Fellowship. You just trim these scenes out simply because you want to increase the pace, not because they're not helpful to the movie. Get some sleep. This was a scene that was potentially very helpful between Aragorn and, and Boromir, that we, we did feel that we wanted them to go into Amon Hen and into Boromir's ultimate uh, sacrifice and death with a certain amount of estrangement. Because the last time we had a scene between these two characters, obviously it was a, a scene with much more warmth in the Lothorian forest. We wanted those two great characters to part on bad terms. It's almost like lovers. I mean, you know, that adds pathos, of course, to the death scene. But we didn't have time. Once you hit that river, the main reason to get rid of it is because you had to keep going. Certainly there was a story momentum issue. But it, it, I think it also was is that by the time we have left Lothlorien, their relationship has shifted and moved on. It has become more intimate. And in a way, there is a degree of understanding between the two characters that doesn't speak to this bald argument on Riverbank, where um, they're still harping on about things that were really... Well, that's it, but that is the seed, that is the ring again, working. Well, it is. It, it was didn't, a difficult yeah, decision, I know, but I I don't, in, in the end, I don't, yeah. I don't think it was the wrong decision. No. The Argonath is another wonderful icon from the book. These were two miniatures, the statues, that were about seven foot tall, and we shot a plate on a boat down the river and we had to track the miniatures, which means that we had to match the rocking of the boat and when we shot our models, the models had to rock the same way, which was a bit of a, um, a trick and wonderful piece of compositing was done by, um, by the wetter folk. But I, I love the size of the statues and this shot in particular I wanted to, to, to do to make them feel really grand, to be flying up past the, 
the hand of one of the statues and there's a little bird's nest in the eye. We came up with um, that birds had been nesting and be frightened by the helicopter that's filming the shot. In theory, there's Toll Brandia, which is the, the finger of rock just above the falls of Raros. We, as again, we, we took a lot of care into trying to create Middle Earth in the way that Tolkien described it, so that no matter what anybody's feelings are about changes in the story, that you really felt that you had gone to Middle Earth and we'd gone there on location to shoot. I love the way that Sean and Elijah play this little moment where they, each of them know, they can sense what's about to happen. Across the lake at nightfall. We spent a lot of time on, on this particular, it was Lake Mahora, was it? Mavora. Mavora. But the first time, first time we were in town, now we had the snows and the floods. And the second time, we had this horrific earthquake. It's the only time I've ever seen the ground move, wave, like a, like a wave, undulate. Gimli is really describing the terrain that Frodo and Sam find themselves on at the beginning of the two towers. His vivid description of what's in front of them is um, exactly what Frodo and Sam have to face very shortly. Michael Desky pointed out that Legolas is forever saying, we've got to keep moving, we should yeah. leave, and everyone always ignores him. <laughs> yes, well, maybe they'll start to pay, pay more attention to him in the future. This sequence was shot... Um, Again, very early in the shoot, we, were, we found ourselves filming the climax of this movie within the first few weeks of starting to shoot the film, way back in 1999. And Peter's great regret was that he didn't get the art department to make the body of that enormous head. I know, I know, I really do regret it, because I, I suggested that they make this giant big head that we could lie there, and then afterwards I thought, God, wouldn't it have been great if the whole body had been there, if this huge statue had just toppled over, crashed onto the forest floor and broken up, but, you know, we had the whole body, and we could have used it in the fight scene, it would have been a great thing to have in the fight that's coming up, to have this huge statue there, but uh, I didn't think of that till it was too late. It would have been pretty cool. There are other ways, Frodo. Warning. This is a scene which is, you know, very much shot as it is in the book. There's not a lot of liberties, apart from tweaking the dialogue here and there. Um, you know, it's one of those very memorable scenes from the book that we were able to take our lead straight from the writings of Tolkien. Yeah. In fact, it was, this, we had a lot more of it, didn't we? Yeah, this is a shortened version of it. This forest is a wonderfully ancient... Um, mossy forests in a place called Paradise. Most of Paradise is a national park and they don't really like film crews going there too much but this particular piece is on private land so the owner of the forest allowed us to, to shoot there. We were obviously very careful at trying to preserve it as much as we could but it's just so lovely and green and mossy and, uh, and very primordial. This was a very uh, one of the first scenes that Sean shot, wasn't it? It was Yeah, the first major scene. Yes. Yeah. And I remember when we were looking at the dailies, we were all blown away by how yeah. he the power and energy he mm. poured into the to his performance in this scene. The seeing seat on Amon Hen is a scene that we trimmed back before the film was finished. We we originally shot exactly what's in the book, where Frodo looks in various directions and he sees uh, trolls coming out of the mountains and he sees orcs and he sees the 
the ships, the pirate ships coming up the river. And we pre-visualized that in our, with our computer pre-visualization and we filmed Frodo, but we never actually completed the effect shots. And we ultimately shortened the sequence to just being his, him seeing Baradur and the Eye of Sauron, which is in the book, but we, we just felt we needed to get on with the story. So we, um, we never completed the other effect shots. The sequence with Aragorn um, talking to Frodo and Amon here, this is in the book, isn't it? But it's not quite as developed no. as it is here, but it's certainly the farewell between Aragorn and Frodo does happen in the book. No, no. 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 Oh, it doesn't no. happen in the book? No, this was... Oh, okay. yeah, we, yeah. Is this a completely yeah, out of no, this, this is, oh, a, is that right? God, I always thought there was, it was a little piece of No, it that was Fran and I. Remember one time we were just we were like, what the hell is wrong with this? What the hell is wrong with this? And we realised that... Uh, one of the reasons for this this particular scene is that that we we felt um, very strongly that early on, especially in, in earlier drafts before we started filming, that that um, the, these two great characters who who go on to carry the the main story threads for the for the rest of the films needed this moment together. It also juxt juxtaposes exactly what's happened with Boromir in the sense exactly. that there's one there's one man who was tempted by the ring mm. and Nobody's couldn't resist. And here is another man who is tempted by the ring at this moment and he does resist it. He is he has got the strength to push it away. So it's also important for Aragorn because in a way this actually proves something to Aragorn himself. That 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 Aragorn can see that he he does have the power to reject the ring when it's offered to him. Yeah. And that leads Aragorn then to believe that there is some strength in his own race. Yes. So, in a sense, you know that moment for his character, we felt we felt was really important. The the other the other thing I think was with this between the two of them is that he does say those great lines. Um, I would have followed him to Mordor, uh, into the very fires of Mordor, but he doesn't say it to Frodo, and and it just seems such a waste to mm. not actually say that to the person, the one person that you that you meant to say it to. And I have to say, a lot of Tolkien scholars, a lot of people who are real fans of the book have loved that scene and not objected to it at all, which is great. It's hard to tell from the pictures, but this was actually shot on a, on a, on a massively hot summer's day. I mean, there were probably 40 degree temperatures, oh, like a, you know, over 100 degrees um, Fahrenheit. And w w we were literally carrying Urukais off the set who had fainted and all that, because you can imagine these poor guys wearing all that rubber and those leather costumes and stuff in the... In the, in the uh, the heat. It was very, very hot. I love the way that Legolas uses his arrows there to stab and to to shoot two guys at once and things. We wanted um, Legolas to be, you know, to, to really show what a great archery was and Orlando was able to pull that stuff off so well. Again, this this farewell um, uh, was very important. It doesn't happen in the book, um, but uh, we again felt was was really important. Come on! And this was an important scene because, again, we felt that uh, in the book uh, this doesn't happen, this farewell. It's, it's, it's something that's talked about while Frodo's not there. Um, and we wanted this moment. And, and I think especially the understanding no. between Mary and Frodo is very, very important because uh, it, it shows you that Mary, especially who's, who's slightly brighter, shall we say, than Pippin, um, has an understanding of what it is that Frodo is doing. And with their usual extraordinary courage, these two little hobbits help their friend. I, I wanted the Amon Hen location to feel ancient, so we built all these ruins 
on the hillside because people don't realize that that this hill was once a, a much grander structure that the seeing seat at the top of Ammon Hen was the climax of an ancient a place of worship in the Numenorean days. It was, it was the borders first arrived, of Gondor. Which and is, in fact, that's what the Argonath stood there, for, the, border, the, the border borders of, of Gondor. The this hill was a place of ancient worship, like a, like a temple almost. So we evoked that by putting these polystyrene ruins all throughout the... Oh, that's the, fabulous. Uh, hillside. Was it Numenorean polystyrene? Yeah, that was genuine was Numenorean polystyrene. Actually, they were borrowed from Weathertop because we ran out I of I know, money. we did. If you look very closely, it's a bit of recycling going on. Numenorean recycling. There, that is true. We did run out of ruins, so we brought Weathertop back into play. Mm. Yeah. The arrows that Legolas is firing are actually computer-generated arrows. He couldn't get them out of his quiver and notch them up fast enough. It just was not possible. And obviously we wanted them to fly and hit the Uruks as well. This is a cable cam shot. This is shot from a camera that is mounted on wires between two trees and it's rolling down on pulleys and it was remote controlled and the camera just basically ran down, we call them flying foxes, like a pulley between two trees, over almost half a mile long. The Ammon Hen fight was choreographed by our wonderful swordmaster Bob Anderson, who did a great job training all of the stunt guys who, you know, we were using stuntmen who had done movies in New Zealand before, but had never obviously used swords and axes and things, and, and our actors had to be trained up. Sean Bean's used yes. Well, Sean Bean has used the sword before, no? Sean was probably the most experienced of our sword-wielding actors. I like seeing Mary and Pippin uh, use their swords a bit. It's really nice to have Mary and Pippin more interactive in what's going on rather than just being spectators. We shot more fighting on Ammon Hen than what appeared obviously in the theatrical version and I put a little bit of it back here. We still shot more than what you're even seeing here but basically the fight can't go on too long. Um, we do have to get on with the story, but there was a couple of nice little fight moments that we trimmed. Scenes like the throat cutting and the arm being chopped off were obviously trimmed back really for rating reasons. Boromir's last stand was a scene that I really wanted to capture from the book. This is where a character like Lurtz really comes in handy because we could now make it personal that it wasn't just an anonymous Uruk that was shooting Boromir with the arrows. It was this creature called Lurtz that we sort of knew and we hated him already in a sense, so it makes it even more powerful. And of course he, he resonates Saruman because he's had so much to do with Saruman that he is Saruman's creation, so that plays back to that. And Sean just did this sequence so incredibly well. In a way, the inspiration for the soundtrack here was really a Heavenly Creatures inspiration, that the scene at the end of Heavenly Creatures when the mother is being led down the track by the two girls, we used the humming chorus and we sort of took all of the sounds away. And in a sense, I, I kept playing that in my mind over and over again when we were filming this. And so, you know, in some respects, I... I I ended up treating this in a similar way in terms of the way that we we distance the sound from the picture and we make it much more of a, of a headspace kind of moment. The choral piece under this is, um, they're actually singing in Elvish some lines from the book, which is um, lines of Faramir's, I do not love the, the sword for its brightness or the arrow for its swiftness. I love only that which they defend. So beautiful sentiment under this moment. Having created our villain in Lurtz, we obviously have to finish him off. And 
we were actually shooting two things at once because whilst I was filming Boromir's Last Stand, um, Barry Osborne was just on the other side of the hill. We were only about 30 or 40 feet away. He was just over the hill on the other side of the slope filming the fight between um, Lurts and Aragorn. So this was largely shot by Barry. Vigo did this incredibly well. There's a, there's a shot coming up where he had to, he had to uh, hit the, the knife that gets thrown at him with his, his sword and he did it first take. Like that was a real knife that was being thrown and he literally did bat it away with his sword for real. There wasn't anything fake about it. We do a little bit of uh, computer enhancement here to take Lutz's arm off. We weren't allowed to have it spurting though. No spurting blood was allowed. I'm sure people are going to blame me for Lurtz licking his dagger, but that was actually filmed by Barry Osborne, and I, I have no responsibility for it at all. I, I can distance myself from that, although I do actually quite like it. This moment between Boromir and Aragorn is, is iconic from the book. You know, you can read the book and, and imagine uh, Boromir uh, leaning against the, the, the base of the tree with the arrows in him and Aragorn leaning over him and I think this this moment is better than the moment in the book. Well we, we, we I said it. <laughs> we definitely <laughs> we definitely enhanced the, the, the dialogue. We we made it not just a lot dialogue, but I actually think the emotional content of yeah. this moment and the connection between these two characters and, and I do think it was a failing of uh, of Professor Tolkien's. Um I wanted more when I read that moment in the book. Yeah. As it is in the movie the scene really becomes as much about Aragorn as it is about Boromir's death. And it is an, it, it's really a moment for Aragorn to declare to, to us, the audience, his intention now to embrace his, his, his birthright as, as a, um, a, a noble king of men and to pursue that, which is obviously what really what Aragorn's story is over our next two movies. And it's the simple identification with the world of men, our people, he says. And, and you can see, and Sean plays it so beautifully. There's a very subtle thing that happens when Boromir dies here, which is coming up shortly, that on our colour timing, because we did all of our colour grading in the computer, we were able just to make his face go pale at the moment that he dies, just to take away ah. a little, little bit of the colour. That last line was... There were advocates to cut that last line, and it was very interesting that, that Sean really, really wanted that line. My brother, my captain, my king. Oh, it was a great line. I, yeah. I really love it. I really love it. That's great. This is an image that I really like too of the kiss on the forehead. The final moments between with Frodo here before he decides to go on the boat and then with Sam was something that we actually ended up shooting this twice, didn't we? We yeah. we shot a version of it where we made it much more of an action climax. Um, a version that we that was it was not a good idea and we realized it wasn't a good idea when it was shot we actually had an urukai attacking frodo in the water as he was in, he was he was attempting to escape in the boat and did we actually shoot that yeah so half well, of you, it was shot you almost yeah. you were down to just rehearsing the fight sequences no we stuff, shot yeah. it we definitely we we filmed some of it but it sort of just didn't really it wasn't ultimately what this part of the story should be about so and it was it was reconceived and we traveled back down to lake mavora uh, doing pickups and we actually shot the and stuff. Well, it wasn't really doing pickups, was it? It was shot during the shoot. It was no, shot it was right shot. at the very end of the shoot. It was. Well, what happened was initially we had a studio note. They were really worried about the closure of the story and whether the, the film would be satisfying to an audience. Um, you know, if it didn't have some kind of big 
action moment for Frodo. And so we promised to go away and have a think about it and we tried, we wrote something which, you know, we didn't feel wonderful about, but we thought maybe they're right, we didn't know. And as soon as we started to try and execute it, we realized it yeah. was completely wrong. Fact. And we also understood um, that, I mean, having seen the, the footage that we did have cut together, yeah. what was needed. That it that it was this this was entirely about the breaking of the fellowship and um, and it was it was an emotional climax to a story it didn't have to have an action content and the, the great the great triumph for Frodo is not over some sort of Urukai of Saruman's but it is over the ring it is when he grabs that ring and does not allow the ring to control him so that it is in a way that's his great his great enemy and that scene that rewrite as i said before the great scenes they write themselves and that was an easy write once we knew we wrote it and we knew that we were going to hear hear gandalf and hear that we knew exactly what he was hearing in his head i remember we did it in like 10 minutes this this um sequence of sean Aston Underwater was actually shot in a studio dry. It's called Dry for Wet. He was in front of a blue screen with fans blowing on his cloak to make it billow around, and we put all of the water effects were added in later. So he wasn't having to worry about holding his breath. He was able to just act um, and concentrate on that. Now, the, the, the last sequence between Frodo and Sam on the boat here was actually directed by Fran. She was there on the day when this was shot, um, and I was about... 300 miles away directing um, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli chasing the Uruks at the beginning of film two. This was a, a, a thought afterwards to reprise Sam's lines from the, from the um, cornfield. We, we wrote the cornfield sequence, which was just something that we sort of threw in there as an, an, a nice thought of, um, of, of setting up f of, of Sam's feeling that he must protect um, um, Frodo. And um, and when we actually came and rewrote the, and we and we and we wanted to resonate that to resonate at this moment, which I think it does really well. But unfortunately, we got one word wrong, which is "Don't you leave him, Samwise," which I think is much nicer at this at this moment. But earlier on, he says, "Don't you lose him." This was a rubber dummy of Sean Bean because he wasn't around anymore when we shot that. But we did we did make a model of him. Mm, I always thought there should have been some spray over there. And this is the Niagara Falls that we... Uh, that's a, a, a Peruvian fall somewhere in South America. We, we had some footage of a barrel going over the Niagara Falls and we, um, we, we used our computer to replace the barrel with Boromir's boat, computer version of Boromir's boat. So Vigo's just put on Boromir's gauntlet. Yes. Which travel with him all through parts two and three. Yep. It's a bit of grave robbing. <laughs> Yeah, well, he, well, he probably pulled his rings off. He probably, he probably took took his wallet out of his pocket, <laughs> and put all his money in there. <laughs> no, it's actually interesting because Vigo, Vigo came up with the idea of of wearing Boromir's gauntlets for scenes that we were doing in the second and third film. So we shot this much later, and so this was ultimately our our opportunity to show him at the moment that he actually obtains the gauntlets. And it, he has taken up the gauntlet. Well, it's that's right. challenged by Boromir. It's layers, you see. There's lots of layers in this movie. If you look really hard. And these guys, these three guys, go running off into part two, which is another story again of um, the chase across the Rohan Plains in part I two. I love Gimli's laugh. Yeah. <laughs> the best laugh. This is the old car park in Mount Rupehu, isn't it, Pete? Yes. This was, we, we were in Mount Rupehu filming Mordor scenes 
and Emin Muel scenes from the second film, and so we we picked up this shot while we were there for the end of part one. That's a real sunset behind them. This was actually shot at the very end of the day as the sun was going down. What I really like in this scene is the quality in Sean's performance, because you feel that Sam's really moving on now into the role of um, Frodo's protector. Um, much more that, that he, he starts to take over as in films two and three, he becomes the, the driving force behind getting this mission completed. And uh, mm. his will, you're starting to see his will. Yes, How, you the are. The strength of that one. And yes, you are. Yes. Which is cool. It's in his, in his, in his eyes. In his eyes. Yeah. Yay. So, you know, it's interesting because. I mean, I, I, I don't really regard this version of the film as being the director's cut. I, I think that the term director's cut implies something that's not true. And, you know, it implies that the director somehow wasn't happy first time round. And I was very happy with the theatrical version of the film. You know, we had certain considerations because nobody wanted to release a movie that was too long or felt too long. You know, the thing that I, I guess I missed from the theatrical version is, is that most of the trims we made were to do with the characters, were to do with little moments between Merry and Pippin, or Legolas and Gimli, Boromir and Aragorn. And so it, it is nice to have this alternate version of The Fellowship of the Ring, this longer version which has a lot of those moments fleshed out. And I think that uh, the wonderful thing about the DVD format is, is the fact that you know it allows you to present an alternate version of the film. It doesn't replace the theatrical version. It simply allows people to see more of what the theatrical version was. It's telling more of the tale. It's been able to show yeah. more of it. It was a hugely daunting task to be taking on these books. And in a way, we felt we had to give ourselves as much permission to deviate and as much creative latitude as possible. And so that was our starting off point. Don't be afraid to make changes. And we made a lot of changes We in, in our first passes we thought well what do we need to do in order to get this functioning as a, a screen story and then having done that on you know a few drafts we started to feel secure enough to start to adjust the screenplays back to the book it was like once we had a, a really firm sense of how the stories could play it was like okay now now retrieve it make it the story that everybody knows and loves and that it was that was not a sort of conscious path that we plotted. It was just the way it organically happened, that we really wanted to give the fans of the book something that they would love and a story that, that would reflect the book in a truthful way. And that there's always a tension between doing that and also creating something which is cinematically satisfying. So we started off regarding the needs of cinema and then came back to the needs of the people who love this book. And hopefully we found some, some sort of balance Tackling this huge task was, um, it found its own path, it found its own level and it was extraordinary the places you found yourself in with the old laptop open and uh, pages and books scattered around and, and there were many times where Fran, Peter and myself found ourselves on the sides of volcanoes with um, people walking around in prosthetics trying to, to, to do rewrites and some hotel rooms. I remember you guys tried to go away for a holiday, which was which was like this fantasy you held on to in your heads that you were going to get a holiday in July of 2000 during the shooting. And I remember when you were packing, you were packing <laughs> cases full of tapes that you had to review. And of course we had this script 
just kept yeah. happening. But you held on to that dream. Yes. Want to make a special mention of Brian, Brian Bansgrove, our gaffer, who is no longer with us, who was very loved by members of the crew and um, did a and the cast. And he did a fantastic job um, on, the, on this film. And, and really, we would have been sunk without him. In a sense, filming The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings, all in one big hit over 15 months, you know, it was something that you would not normally do. You know, conventional wisdom would say, don't do it. Um, I mean, there were reasons that we did do it, reasons of economy, reasons of being able to release the films one year apart instead of three years apart. Um, but it, it, it really made huge demands on everybody involved. And, you know, the situation was simply one in which everybody just had to, to put their nose down and get their work done, including the cast. Um, you know, everybody knew what they were involved in and there was no room for people who were complaining, no room for people that found it too hard or too difficult. You just had to, you had to do your job with the minimum degree of fuss and not place added pressure on to anybody else. And, and I'm forever grateful for that, for the cast and the crew. You know, and everybody was feeling stressed because it was so long, but they didn't dump it on me. They they knew that I was carrying enough of my own, and so you know, we ended, it ended up being a, an incredibly arduous, long shoot but with a minimal amount of complaining and a really a great spirit mm. because I think everybody felt, well, I can't complain because the next person has got just as much of a problem as I have getting through this. And I think the reason nobody complained, Pete, is because you were... Um, you, they were, I, mean, I remember Elijah saying this, whenever he got tired, he'd just look across at you and, and know that you'd, you, you know, your day wasn't over. You had four hours of um, daily to watch and, and uh, he always felt that if you could do it, he could do it. And I think a lot of them were doing it for you. You know, if you stop to think too much about what you were involved in, you would start to worry about it, you know, if you rationalise it too much. And it became a process of really just putting your head down and thinking about what you were doing in the next week. It was working like one week ahead. Lots of times as the pressure really went on that we would be walking onto sets and the paint wasn't even dry, you know. I mean, I remember Alan Lee, our wonderful conceptual artist who, who you know, did the most brilliant pencil sketches and delicate watercolour paintings of, of scenes. You know, we arrived at the set of Rivendell, which was um, something that he had conceptualised and designed, and Grant Major had had ultimately built built it. And uh, the set had, wasn't really finished at the time. The trucks were arriving and the gear was being unloaded and the actors were in makeup. And Alan was there with a five-inch paintbrush actually painting the set. <laughs> furiously and then we'd be we'd be tell the crew don't lean on this wall because the paint's not dry yet <laughs> and um you know it was pretty much it became something in which we planned for a long long time we we you know we knew what we were going into we had a lot of it planned but nonetheless it was a seat of your pants operation really that we were um, we, we were revising the script we were editing the movie as we were going figuring out ways to improve it all the time the art department got to the point that they they started the movie with you know lots of sets built and complete but of course as the schedule moved on they had limit less and less time because sets would have to be torn down and that studio space would have to be turned into a different set they got to the point that they were um, they were building huge sets from scratch in the space of five or six days from nothing to us being on the set shooting 
the fact that it was um, it was three films at once certainly created this this rolling steam train that you just couldn't jump off it. It was rolling and it was just going to go with you or without you, mm. and you had to somehow keep keep running in front of the train, laying the tracks. This was a crew that always went there and and had faith um, in that sudden inspiration. The head of physical production for The Lord of the Rings at New Line was Carla Fry, um, an incredibly courageous, wonderful lady who really was responsible for steering us through the process that led to the green light of the film and then supervised the production of all three movies through to the completion and unfortunately Carla succumbed to cancer um, about four months after the premiere of The Fellowship of the Ring. So our thoughts are always with her when we see the film and certainly she was very heavily involved in the next two movies as well so I hope in some way these films are a legacy for Carla because she certainly um, she deserves all of our thanks and respect for the work that she did. We'll see you around next time on the commentary for The Two Towers, which uh, we do need to get back and finish that film, so I'll say goodbye now, rush off, finish The Two Towers, and we'll all talk again at some point, I'm sure. So bye-bye, everybody. Till next time. <laughs>